All right, it's time now to uh, wrap up today's program. We've heard four excellent panels uh, discussing various aspects of the court uh, term that just ended and uh, the cases that are coming up in the next uh, more interesting term. Uh, we're going to now have our eighth annual B. Kenneth Simon lecture. Uh, Ken Simon was a um, wonderful man, he died uh, a few years ago, who uh, was a, an industrialist in Pittsburgh, and uh, later in life he became a philanthropist with a keen interest in the American founding, and in particular in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. He saw our work at the Cato Institute, and in particular uh, the publication of our most popular uh, publication, namely the Declaration and the Constitution. We have sold or given away over four million of those, and we hope that it will serve to inspire Americans uh, and indeed people around the world, because we've now published that document in foreign languages as well, to uh, repair to the principles of the American founding uh, and to revive them in this country and indeed elsewhere. The um, Simon Lecture uh, was given uh, in the first year by uh, Judge Douglas Ginsburg, who should be here shortly. Uh, we're lucky to have with us also uh, Judge Danny Boggs, the Chief Judge of the Sixth Circuit back there, who gave the uh, fifth annual Simon, uh, Simon Lecture. Earlier today, you heard from Nadine Strawson, who gave the fourth Simon Lecture. And we have with us also Professor Randy Barnett from uh, Georgetown Law Center, who gave the lecture last year, and whose article, which is an expanded version of his lecture, here's Doug Ginsburg right here, who gave the inaugural uh, B. Kenneth Simon Lecture. Um, Randy gave the uh, lecture last year, and it is the lead article in expanded form in your uh, Cato Supreme Court Review, uh, indeed with a provocative title, Is the Constitution Libertarian? And he concluded, of course it's libertarian. How could it be anything but coming from those great classical liberals of the Enlightenment? Uh, this year, we are joined by um, another great scholar and a man who has just left the bench, uh, the Honorable Michael McConnell, who just two weeks ago retired from the Tenth Circuit and is now out at Stanford University. He is one of the nation's leading authorities on the separation of powers, federalism, originalism, and various other aspects of constitutional law. Um, he's well known especially for his work in freedom of religion, uh, a critical area of constitutional law uh, that was a key focus of his scholarship before uh, he ascended to the bench. Uh, before uh, joining the Stanford faculty, uh, he served, as I said, on the Tenth Circuit, uh, but he also, uh, before that, uh, was a, a presidential professor of law at the S.J. Quinney uh, College of Law at the University of Utah, and prior to that, the William B. Graham Professor of Law at the University of Chicago. Uh, he served uh, in the uh, Reagan administration as uh, assistant general counsel in the Office of Management and Budget and assistant to the Solicitor General in the Department of Justice. Uh, he has uh, litigated 11 cases before the Supreme Court and numerous cases in other courts. Um, he has a distinguished 
uh, background, and we're looking forward to a distinguished uh, production of um, articles and books from him in the future now that he's back in the academic world and can speak more freely than, of course, he could when he was on the bench. Um, his lecture is entitled, also provocatively, Natural Rights and the Effect of Partial Enumeration. Uh, it is uh, not unrelated to the theme last year from Professor Barnett. So if uh, Professor McConnell is off the reservation, so to speak, Professor Barnett, Barnett is right here to make sure that uh, he is given notice of that. Would you please welcome Professor McConnell? Thanks, Roger, for that introduction and for the invitation to be here uh, today. I am uh, honored to be asked to give this uh, lecture on Constitution Day, and, and it's really been a pleasure to be here uh, for, the, for the conference today, some, some many old friends in the room and, and uh, some new friends as well. So thanks uh, uh, very much. The, the uh, last panel was uh, uh, predictions for the future, so it seems only right that uh, that I take us back to the past. And uh, so I'd like to take us all back uh, uh, to the, back to the fall of 1787 and the summer of 1789 when representatives of the American people adopted that remarkable set of commitments that we call the Bill of Rights. Now, some of the most contested questions of modern constitutional law stem from the decision at that time to enumerate some, but necessarily not all, of the fundamental rights that we might enjoy as human beings as part of our basic legal framework. Uh, now, for the most part, I'm going to be talking about history, but uh, by the end, I hope that it will be also uh, evident that a re-examination of the rights jurisprudence of the beginning may offer new avenues for thought about how we might structure protections for civil liberties in an age when we are all too conscious of the risks of an overweening uh, judiciary to uh, our democratic republic. Now, as everyone here no doubt is aware, the Constitution as it emerged from the Philadelphia Con Convention in 1787 did not even contain a Bill of Rights. Now, this was not because of any theoretical or jurisprudential objection to the idea of a Bill of Rights that emerged later, it was simply for lack of time and attention. No one at the Constitutional Convention in 1787 thought to propose a Bill of Rights until September 12th, three and a half months after the convention began its work, at a time when the delegates were desperately putting the finishing touches on an agreed-upon plan of government. At that late date, the delegates were anxious to get home, anxious to begin the difficult process of securing ratification, and unwilling to open what could be a Pandora's box of conflicting ideas about fundamental rights. They voted down the proposal for a Bill of Rights by a margin of zero states in favor, all 10 states present at the time being opposed. But the convention's rejection of the proposal to include a Bill of Rights turned out to be the anti-federalists' most potent issue during the debates over ratification. The opponents of the Constitution hoped to send the document back to a second convention for a round of amendments, 
and the lack of a Bill of Rights was the most popular reason for doing so. And as so often happens in politics, this demand for a Bill of Rights stimulated a response, reasons why a Bill of Rights might be a bad idea. Defenders of a Constitution lacking a Bill of Rights argued, in the words of Alexander Hamilton in Federalist Number 84, that a Bill of Rights would be, quote, not only unnecessary, but dangerous. Unnecessary, he argued, because the Constitution had already protected against abuse by its careful enumeration of powers. Although the new federal government was given important powers, such as to regulate foreign and interstate commerce, uh, to raise and support armies and the like, it was given no power to regulate or license the press or to establish a national religion or to do most of the other things that were feared. In light of the enumeration of powers, there was no need for a Bill of Rights. Indeed, as Hamilton said, quote, the Constitution is itself in every rational sense and to every useful purpose a Bill of Rights. Now that meant it was unnecessary. Addition of a Bill of Rights would be dangerous because it was impossible to compose a complete, satisfactory, and compendious list of all the rights of the people, and an incomplete enumeration would imply that the items left off the list would no longer be recognized as rights. Now, the first argument, while interesting, was clearly wrong, even if Hamilton did make it. The enumerated powers of the federal government might be confined to essential and innocuous matters, but the Necessary and Proper Clause gave Congress discretion as to the means of effectuating those powers. It requires little imagination to see how important individual rights could be abridged in the course of carrying out the limited and enumerated powers of the new federal government. Almost everyone could agree that the new government should be given the power to tax imports, for example, but in the course of doing so, revenue agents searching for contraband might invade the security of a merchant's warehouse without a warrant or probable cause. Most could agree that Congress needed the power to raise armies, but in doing so, they might conscript Quakers or other religious objectors. Congress may lay excise taxes, but newspapers might thereby be taxed out of existence. Cruel and unusual punishments might be used to punish crime. The right to keep and bear arms might be curtailed in the national capital, just to name a few examples. I have a new example from the Washington Post just this morning, where I learned that in 1782, Congress, under the Articles of Confederation, authorized and recommended to the American public a particular new version, a patriotic Bible, a new version of the, uh, uh, of the Holy Scripture in order to displace uh, the royal authority that stands behind the authorized version, that is, the King James uh, Bible. And such a Bible was uh, therefore uh, published. I, that's even under the Articles of Confederation before all these new powers had been given the, uh, uh, the national government. So on reflection, it is evident that enumerating the powers or ends of government would not protect against abusive means of carrying those powers into effect. So it was hard to argue persuasively that a Bill of Rights was unnecessary. The Federalist's second argument carried more weight, though. Here is how it was expressed by James Iredell at the North Carolina Ratifying Convention, and I'm quoting Iredell. It would not only be useless but dangerous to, enum to enumerate 
a number of rights which are not intended to be given up because it would be implying in the strongest manner that every right not included in the exception might be impaired by the government without usurpation, and it would be impossible to enumerate every one. Let anyone make what collection or enumeration of rights he pleases, I will immediately mention 20 or 30 more rights not contained in it. Now, I suggest you take up Iridell's challenge. Sit down some Sunday afternoon and try to draft up a list of rights that would contain every right that matters without being so vague that the list would be subject to misconstruction or evasion. Give your list to a friend and see how many rights you left out. Now, this problem became embarrassingly obvious when the first Congress, buckling to popular demand, attempted to draw up a list. After agreeing to what would have been the First and Second Amendments, had they been ratified, these had to do with the size of the House of Representatives and limitation on the power of Congress to grant themselves pay increases, ever a popular issue, uh, the House turned to the draft of what we now call the First Amendment, but which was their third. Now, the longest debate was over religion. It was inconclusive. They then turned to the following proposal. The freedom of speech and of the press and the right of the people peaceably to assemble and consult for their common good and to apply to the government for redress of grievances shall not be infringed. Here, by the way, I'm reading from uh, uh, the Annals of Congress, which was their equivalent of the congressional record uh, back then. So, so that sounds pretty familiar, right? It's very similar to what we now have as what we call uh, the First Amendment. But it immediately excited... Uh, an interesting objection. Theodore Sedgwick of Massachusetts, who, by the way, was a very smart guy, a very good lawyer, uh, he stands up and he says, he, he and I'm quoting again from the annals, he, he submitted to those gentlemen who had contemplated the subject what effect such an amendment would have. He feared it would tend to make them appear trifling in the eyes of their constituents. What, said he, Shall we secure the freedom of speech and think it is necessary at the same time to allow the right of assembling? So he's really getting at the problem of detail, right? That if once you begin to get down to assembly as well as speech, well, it, it's either going to be redundant and, and trivial on the one hand, or it may cause you to wonder, well, you know, what about sign language or uh, smoke signals or, or the Internet, you know, the... Uh, uh, if we have to uh, spell out each of the, um, once you begin to spell out the details, the lack of details with respect to other things begin uh, to matter. Uh, to return to Sedgwick, he says, if a people freely converse together, they must assemble for that purpose. It is a self-evident, unalienable right which the people possess. It is certainly a thing that would never be called in question. It is derogatory to the dignity of the house to descend to such minutiae and he therefore moved to strike out the right of assembly. Well, up pops uh, Egbert Benson of New York, and you can almost hear the sort of bureaucratic and pompous tone in his voice when he responds, and I quote, The committee who framed the report proceeded on the principle that these rights belonged to the people. They conceived them to be inherent, and all that they meant to provide against was their being infringed by the government. Well, true enough, 
but does this really answer Sedgwick's problem, right? Because uh, if you have detail with respect to some things and no detail with respect to other things, this creates something of a problem. And I don't think Benson quite uh, addresses that. And so, and, and let me, so Sedgwick responds to Benson. Let me give you the way he put it. He says that if the committee were governed by that general principle, and here he means the principle that, that all rights that belong to the people uh, should be uh, listed, uh, they might have gone into a very lengthy enumeration of rights. They might have declared that a man should have the right to wear his hat if he pleased, that he might get up when he pleased, and go to bed when he thought proper. But he would ask the gentleman whether he thought it necessary to enter into these trifles in a declaration of rights in a government where none of them were intended to be infringed. Pretty good examples, don't you think? Wear a hat, when do you go to bed? Um, but then rises John Page from Virginia. And Page responds, he says, he says, the gentleman from Massachusetts, that's Sedgwick, who made this motion objects to the clause because the right is so trivial, of so trivial a nature. He supposes it no more essential than whether a man has a right to wear his hat or not. But let me observe to him that such rights have been opposed and a man has been obliged to pull off his hat when he appeared before the face of authority. People have also been prevented from assembling together on their lawful occasions. So what is Page talking about? Now, this is a pretty educated audience. I'm curious. In fact, I'd like a hands. How many people here know the incident that Page is referring to when he, when he says that there have been occasions when a man has been obliged to pull off his hat when he appeared before the face of authority? How many people know? William Penn. Okay, William Penn. I don't... So there are a few, there are a few people who know, but everyone in that room would have known what John Page was talking about because this was an incident so, so familiar to the Americans of the day, right, that he only has to make an oblique reference to it to have this whole story uh, come out. So let me tell you the story of William Penn and his hat. So, um, as, as you probably know, uh, William Penn was a Quaker, and uh, he was uh, proceeding to worship at a uh, meeting house on what I would have called Grace Church Street, because that's how it's spelled, but, you know, foreigners spell better than they pronounce. I gather that it's actually called Gracious Street. So, on the, in the, meeting house, the meeting place on Gracious Street had been locked because Quaker assemblies were not uh, licensed and authorized by law. And so when the Quakers get there, they can't go in. And so what they do is they hold a spontaneous meeting uh, out on the sidewalk, out on the street, on Gracious Street. And there are several hundred people there, and William Penn uh, gives an address, uh, whereupon he is arrested for, viola for unlawful assembly. And he's taken to court. 
and he's tried for this, and in an exchange with the judge, he says to the judge, well, where in the statutes does it uh, does make does an unlawful making addressing a crowd and, 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 and why is that illegal? And the judge says it's in the common law, right? And when and Penn insists that he shouldn't be prosecuted except by an actual written statute, but the judge shuts him down and won't even make, let him. He will not even allow Penn to make that argument to the jury. So they bring in some witnesses, and the witnesses, in fact, say that Penn did make this speech on the street, on uh, on Gracious Street that day, and there really wasn't much doubt about that. And uh, and so the judge then sends the jury out for a verdict. And, uh, well, this should have been a pretty easy case, right, because... uh, you know, they had their instructions from the judge, and there wasn't really any doubt that Penn had done this. He had made a speech, right? And uh, the, the jury was out for hours. And then finally they come back, and the foreman of the jury, whose name was Edward Bushnell, uh, is asked, he's asked for the verdict, and he says, we find the defendant guilty of speaking on Gracious Street, well, this is a problem because speaking on Gracious Street is not a crime, right? Uh, you have it, this would be like somebody who's being charged with murder, and the jury comes back and and says, uh, "We find him guilty of pulling the trigger on Broadway," right? That's you have to find the jury has to find the defendant guilty of a crime in order for. Uh, uh, there to be a judgment uh, in the case. So the judge explains this is no, that's not good enough. Go back and bring in a proper verdict. So they go back and they come back again. And Bushnell says essentially the same thing. This happens several times. He comes back. He slightly different variances of wording, but the uh, but the bottom line was the jury was willing to find the fact that Penn had spoken on Gracious Street but they were not willing to declare that they were not willing to say that this was a crime. Um, And so the judge gets furious, and he locks the jury up overnight, and the report of the case tells us that they were locked up, quote, without meat, drink, fire, or tobacco. (laughs) Or chamber pot, it goes on to add. And so uh, after being so locked up with, uh, without tobacco or other necessaries of life, uh, uh, the, um, the jury comes back and Bushnell says, we find the defendant not guilty. Well, that's the end of the matter as far as Penn's prosecution is concerned. When the jury finds you not guilty, no, in English law, that you can't be that can't be questioned, but the judge says that the jury has obviously been acting contumaciously in violation of his instructions because there was no doubt with the evidence, no question that Penn had done what he had done. He had instructed them that if he had done that, they were to bring in a a verdict of guilty for speaking to an unlawful assembly, and they had defied his instructions, and so he held the jurors in contempt of court and fined them all 40 marks. Now, I don't know how much money 40 marks is, but the jurors refused to pay, so they are then imprisoned for contempt of court for refusing to pay the fine, 
whereupon Bushnell sues out a writ of habeas corpus to the high court to challenge the legality of of their confinement for that. And the high court rules that uh, and, and in, in one of the most important cases in all of English and American constitutional history, that jurors may not be coerced into uh, uh, coming out with a verdict. That is, that the very idea of trial, trial by jury means that the jury must come independently and on its own to the conclusion of the judgment, and they may not be punished or coerced into any uh, particular uh, uh, judgment. This is Bushnell's case. Uh, well, you may be saying to yourself, what about the hat? We ha- you haven't said anything about William Penn's hat. And, 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 and that's where it really gets interesting. <laughs> because having been acquitted, uh, or, or William Penn, comes, he comes in to receive the actual verdict uh, of the court. Uh, and uh, as a, you know, Penn is a Quaker. Quakers do not believe in doffing their hats in a sign of respect or subservience to earthly authorities. They believe that only God is entitled to that kind of uh, respect. And yet at that time in you know, the cultural history of Britain, this is in this hierarchical society, taking off your hat was... It was essential so that if the king came along, everyone would take off their hats. And, and when the judge would come in the courtroom, any, uh, anyone wearing a hat would take off the, uh, their hat. And to do otherwise would be a sign of disrespect. So William Penn prudently chose that morning not to wear a hat, precisely so that he would not be in the situation of not taking it off, Right? So he comes into the court, the judge is about to come in, and on the instruction of the judge, the bailiff claps a hat on, on William Penn's head. Judge comes in, Penn, of course, does not take off the hat, and he is then fined for contempt of court. So they get him after all. And this is the incident that John Page is referring to when he tells the members of the first Congress that such rights have been opposed and a man has been obliged to pull off his hat when he appeared before the face of authority, people have also been prevented from assembling together on their lawful occasions. And therefore, it is well, Page says, to guard against such stretches of authority by inserting the privilege in the Declaration of Rights. Well, Vining, John Vining then basically says, look, uh, it's not going to do any harm, so let's just vote for it. And they vote down Sedgwick's uh, amendment to eliminate the right of assembly, uh, and they, uh, they move on. Uh, but Page had somehow made Sedgwick's point for him in the course of this, uh, of this discussion, and Iredell's point as well, because it is not possible to make a complete list of rights. And when you include some points of detail, uh, like the right of assembly, Congress will appear to have deliberately left others out. You hear this argument all the time. 
you know, uh, Constitution does not contain, doesn't say anything about, well, you know, fill in the blank, right of abortion, gay marriage, right of parents to control the educational upbringing of their, of their children, uh, uh, whatever it might be, right? Uh, and so uh, I think we're beginning to get a sense at this point of why it might be so that a Bill of Rights, which is necessarily incomplete, might actually be dangerous, even if not uh, uh, unnecessary, right? Um, this is the way, uh, oh, but, um, uh, and, and the reason why this is such a powerful doctrine, not just in common sense but in law, has to do with a principle of legal interpretation that we still have and that we still describe by its Latin term. We've gotten rid of most Latin in the law, but we still use this. It's the principle of of uh, expressio unius, or the full phrase, expressio unius est exclusio altorius, to express one thing uh, is to exclude the others, right? And so just for an example, uh, you know, if there's a law that prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, sex, ethnicity, or religion, you would know that there is no prohibition on discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, height, or political views, right? Because to, ex to express some things is to exclude uh, the others. Uh, and uh, that would have applied everyone, by the way. I think it's safe to say proponents and opponents of the Bill of Rights alike recognized that this was a, uh, a problem with the Bill of Rights. This is the way uh, Madison put it. Madison said, it has been objected also against a Bill of Rights that by enumerating particular exceptions to the grant of power, it would disparage those rights which were not placed in that enumeration, and it might follow by implication that those rights which were not singled out were intended to be assigned into the hands of the general government and were consequently insecure. That is one of the most plausible arguments I've ever heard against the admission of a Bill of Rights into this system. Right. And uh, I could give you uh, just a, f a few other examples from across the spectrum, uh, pros and cons, north and south. The federal farmer, prominent uh, anti-federalist probably in Virginia, uh, says, further, the people, thus establishing some few rights and re remaining totally silent about others similarly circumstanced, the implication indubitably is that they mean to relinquish the latter. Or James Wilson at the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention says, and I quote, a bill of rights annexed to a constitution is an enumeration of the powers reserved. If we attempt an enumeration, everything that is not enumerated is presumed to be given or Charles Coatsworth Pinckney in South Carolina. He says, we had no Bill of Rights inserted in our Constitution, for as we might perhaps have omitted the enumeration of some of our rights, it might hereafter be said we had delegated to the general government a power to take away such of our rights as we had not enumerated. Now, I've read these quotes because I want you to note carefully the verbs that these gentlemen used. They did not say that the unenumerated rights would be left to the vagaries of future interpretation. Right? They said that the unmentioned rights would be, quote, assigned into the hands of the general government, in Madison's words, or relinquished, to use the 
of federal farmers, familiar language, or given, according to Wilson, or delegated, according to Pinckney. Now, this was the language of Lockean social compact theory. Remember, at the time of the, uh, uh, <coughs> of the uh, framing of the Constitution, the, uh, the social compact was understood as being, as specifically being a compact in which the people gave up or relinquished, which was the typical Lockean term, relinquished certain of their natural rights in exchange for which uh, they would receive the security of a protection by the state uh, for uh, their retained rights plus any additional positive rights uh, which they might uh, uh, obtain, right? Um, and thus it followed, and, and this is what constitution drafting was all about, right? That they understood first with the state drafting of the state constitutions and then with the drafting of the federal constitution uh, that they were engaged in social compact, in the creation of a social compact, which would define which of their natural rights were being retained, which ones were being uh, protected, which ones were being, uh, were being relinquished. And so if you... And, and, and in this process, uh, there were two possible dangers to rights. One danger is that the people might imprudently uh, have overbroad delegations of power to the government, and the other was that they might have uh, incomplete enumerations of rights, and that those two, uh, uh, those two threats would be the two possible uh, ways in which the social compact could result in, an, in, an, uh, in uh, giving up natural rights which weren't not intended. And so uh, Madison uh, then uh, shifts and becomes a supporter of a Bill of Rights, and he proposes a solution to this problem. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll quote it for you. Uh, uh, his solution is to add an amendment as part at the end of the Bill of Rights, which would say, the exceptions here or elsewhere in the Constitution made in favor of particular rights shall not be so construed as to diminish the just importance of other rights retained by the people or as to enlarge the powers delegated by the Constitution, but either as an actual limitations of such powers or as inserted merely for greater caution." Now, this draft makes clear that at least some of the rights in the Bill of Rights were actual limitations on the powers of Congress. That is to say that these additions of these Bill of Rights made a difference. We may regard them as clawing back certain rights that otherwise would have been delegated to Congress through the Necessary and Proper Clause. For example, Congress had the power to support armies, but could not do so in times of peace by quartering soldiers in private homes. The natural right of privacy in the home would have been relinquished by the grant of power to Congress to support the armies, but for the, what we now have as, understand as the Third Amendment, uh, which takes back any such power and limits it to prevent this particular consequence. And you can basically run through the entire Bill of Rights and see how it responds to very, each of them respond to different ways in which uh, the uh, um, the powers of Congress could be construed to uh, 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 to, to invade uh, uh, rights. And so this language shows that Madison did not believe that the retained natural rights would operate on their own force 
if they were not carved out of the particular grants of positive power to Congress. So it was important, it was actually legally important uh, to Madison uh, to make these restrictions. Now, the select committee streamlined Madison's draft and gave it the form of the current Ninth Amendment, which I will quote as, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage other others retained by the people. So what does this mean? What protection is accorded the, quote, rights retained by the people? The Supreme Court has never said, and so we're in the realm of speculation. There are two leading schools of thought regarding the meaning of the Ninth Amendment and current uh, scholarship. One, which is exemplified by the work of Professor Kurt Lash, uh, maintains that the Ninth and Tenth Amendments together are a guarantee of federalism. That is, that limitations on the power of the na- they are limitations on the power of the national government. According to Lash, the Tenth Amendment limits federal powers to those enumerated in the Constitution, while the Ninth Amendment guarantees against a broad construction or interpretation of those powers. And the other view, which has recently been exemplified by professors Randy Barnett and Daniel Farber, and I might add, it's, I feel a little bit like you know the Woody Allen movie where uh, Marshall McLuhan appears in the uh, in the line, since uh, Randy is right here in the in the uh, uh, in the front row. Um, uh, and this view is, and I'm quoting from Randy Randy's work, quote: "The unenumerated natural rights that people possessed prior to the formation of government." and which they retain afterwards, should be treated in the same manner as those natural rights that were enumerated in the Bill of Rights. Now, that's the Barnett view. Uh, In other words, according to Barnett, it does not matter at all whether any particular natural right is enumerated or not. They all receive the same degree of of, um, judicial protection. Now, we may call this the fully enforceable rights interpretation, Under it, the judiciary is empowered to determine what those natural rights are, how far they extend, and to what extent they may be regulated or curtailed. Exactly how this works out is a bit sketchy, uh, but Professor Barnett tells us that judges would, quote, scrutinize a regulation of liberty to ensure that it is reasonable and necessary rather than an improper attempt by government to restrict the exercise of the retained rights. Now, just what makes a restriction on natural liberty reasonable and not improper is difficult to say. Reasonable minds often differ sometimes passionately on these topics, and judges have not been vouchsafed any special afflatus to aid in the enterprise. It seems to call for a normative judgment. Now, Professor Farber seems to think, and he's not here, so I don't have to be quite so careful, um, he seems to think that the protections of the Ninth Amendment extend to, but only to, rights that the Supreme Court, in its wisdom, has chosen to recognize uh, under what he acknowledges as the specious grounds of substantive due process. Uh, it's difficult for me to see the logic in that unless we just assume that it was a happy coincidence that the Supreme Court came up with a, exactly the right uh, a list of rights, even though it was operating under a specious uh, uh, methodology. Uh, Professor Barnett's view, I think, is much is mostly broader in most respects and certainly more subtle uh, than that. Uh, but in any event, both schools of thought Lash's view and the 
fully enforceable rights view, make arguments from history, uh, and, uh, but with all respect, I think both schools of thought fall short. Uh, in the written version of this lecture, I intend to explain why I disagree with Kurt Lash's interpretation, but tonight, since I have Randy right in front of me, to, I will uh, confine my critique to the fully enforceable rights uh, interpretation. And specifically, I think that this view is inconsistent with major elements of the Lockean natural rights tradition which form the basis for the Ninth Amendment. First, the theory assumes that all natural rights are retained rights, which is simply not so. Social compact theory holds that the people relinquish many of their natural rights. Natural rights are, in, in, uh, in, in Lockean theory, are not the same thing as what we would now call you know, human rights or fundamental rights or constitutional rights, that is, rights that always and everywhere must be respected by civil government. On the contrary, because rights in the state of nature are insecure, lacking a common means of partial adjudication and enforcement, men enter into a social compact in which they relinquish many of their natural rights in return for a more secure protection for those that they retain. Specifically, according to Locke, we give up our natural right to use private violence to punish transgressors, thus giving the state a monopoly on the legitimate use of force for punishment. In addition, and this is the part that some persons of a libertarian leaning sometimes leave out, each person, quote, quoting now from Locke, each person, quote, is to part with as much of his natural liberty in providing for himself as the good, prosperity, and safety of the society shall require. Now, precisely how much is given up and how much is retained, Locke deliberately does not spell out. For this is not a matter of logical inference. It does not follow from nature or revelation or reason. Rather, it is a political or more precisely a constitutional choice. That is why the terms of the social compact matter. The social compact is the instrument by which the people decide the boundary between governmental power and individual retained rights. Some peoples will choose to create a broad and omnicompetent government. Socialism, perhaps, or corporatism, or mercantilism, or theocracy. Others will jealously guard their natural rights and delegate only such powers as are absolutely essential to secure liberty and civil peace. That is why the details of constitution-making matter, for there is no one, and certainly not judges, with authority to second-guess the sovereign act of the people in drawing that line between power and rights. After the Revolution, Americans understood the process of constitution-making, again, first at the state level and then at the federal level, as creating a new social compact. And that is why they took so seriously the content of the powers delegated and the rights reserved. And this leads to the second problem with the fully enforceable rights theory, that it regards the actual terms of the social compact, the Constitution, as irrelevant. If all retained natural rights are to be treated, quote, in the same manner, quoting again from Randy, uh, without regard to the terms of the Constitution, then the careful drafting of the Bill of Rights was pointless. The framers could have left out most of the rights on the list, 
or maybe not enacted a Bill of Rights at all, and it would have made no difference. Now, this is contradicted, I think, by Madison's insistence that the Bill of Rights were, quote, actual limitations, unquote, on the powers of Congress. And third, and perhaps most important, this school of thought leaps from the language of the amendment. And remember, the language of the amendment is that the rights retained by the people are not denied or disparaged to the conclusion that those rights have been elevated to the status of constitutional rights superior to legislation. That is not what it says. What then does the Ninth Amendment mean if we reject both of these academic interpretations? I ask you to consider this possibility, that the rights retained by the people are indeed individual natural rights, but that they enjoy precisely the same status and are protected in the same way that they were before the Bill of Rights was added to the Constitution. They are not relinquished, they're not denied, they're not disparaged, but neither do they become constitutional rights. They are not made trumps superior to legislation. They had the same legal status that they had when there was no Bill of Rights uh, at all. So that leads to the question, how were retained natural rights protected prior to the Constitution? Now, partly, of course, the answer to that is that they're protected through our representatives in Parliament or the legislature. The protection of the rights of the people was one of the major purposes of a representative government. But Anglo-Americans were a legal culture, and rights enjoyed legal protection even before some of them were enumerated in the form of a written Bill of Rights. I want to describe very briefly two cases from the uh, pre-constitutional period uh, that I think uh, uh, helped to illustrate the way in which natural rights were enforced in court, enforced before there was ever any conception of constitutional rights as trumps that are superior to legislation. Now, I would like to argue to you that these cases are typical, uh, but there's no time for that, and actually this, the evidence is uh, uh, there are not that many cases. And so uh, uh, I will just uh, assert to you that, uh, uh, that they are typical enough uh, for our, our thought experiment about what the Ninth Amendment may actually have, have meant. The first of these cases is called Rutgers against Waddington, a case incidentally in which Alexander Hamilton was, uh, was counsel for the, uh, the defendant. Uh, this case involved a conflict that... Um, uh, over uh, the use of property uh, in the city of New York during the British occupation. As you probably remember, during most of the American Revolution, uh, British troops occupied the city of New York. And one Elizabeth Rutgers, who was a patriot, a supporter of the revolution, fled the city. She is the owner of a brewery and alehouse in, uh, in Manhattan. And uh, when the British uh, occupation troops came in, well, of course, uh, they needed a beer as much as anybody, maybe more than some. And so the British, they, what the British uh, occupying authorities did is that they licensed uh, uh, a merchant to operate the brewery and alehouse in, uh, in Ms. Rutgers' uh, uh, absence. And then after the revolution, when the patriots come back in and, and, and take over, uh, the legislature of the state of New York passes a series of anti-Tory legislation, including giving people the right 
to sue for the value of property that had been uh, seized and used by the British during the uh, military occupation. Now, the only problem with this is that it was a well-established principle of, um, of international law, the law of nations and the law of war, uh, that military occupation authorities had the right to use abandoned property in the cities where they were occupying, and that there was no right, it was in fact contrary to international law, uh, to give a, a right of uh, recompense uh, to the person whose property was so used. And so you have this conflict between this uh, well-established uh, background norm arising from international law uh, versus the statute passed by the uh, uh, legislature of the state of New York. And so what is the court going to do? And in a very interesting opinion uh, by uh, the chief judge, James Duane, he finds largely for the defendants. And let me explain what he what he said in this decision. He's, he begins by saying, uh, the supremacy of the legislature need not be called into question. If they think it fit positively to enact a law, there is no power which can control them. R remember, this is we're talking about before there's a constitution. Right? So when, in, in, in the pre-constitutional period, it, it, there is no power which can control the legislature when the legislature sees fit positively to enact a, a law. Uh, returning to Duane's opinion, when the main object of such a law is clearly expressed and the intention manifest, the judges are not at liberty to reject it, for this would be to put the judicial above the legislative, which would be subversive of all government. But Judge Duane then proceeds to look to give a, a, an extremely narrow, one might say a grudging construction to the New York statute and finds that it did not really fully manifest the intent to displace international law norms, at least not in all respects, and thus finds that um, that, uh, that the background norms are going to govern in the absence of a sufficiently clear, sufficiently explicit, uh, a positive law uh, uh, to the contrary, uh, and thus, uh, again, largely decides uh, for the defendant. Now, the second case I was going to mention just very briefly is the even more famous uh, case called Somerset's case. This is an uh, English uh, uh, case widely regarded as ending slavery in, uh, uh, in England. Uh, uh, Somerset was, uh, was held by his master and taken by his master to London's master as a, a Virginia planter. Uh, they, he takes Somerset to London. Somerset escapes. Uh, he's recaptured. He's put in shackles and a ship in the Thames, and at the instance of some abolitionists, some lawyers are engaged, and they sue out a writ of habeas corpus to challenge the legality of Somerset's detention uh, in London on the ground that there's no lawful basis to hold him. Um, and uh, in a decision by Lord Mansfield, one of the great judges of all English uh, history, the great, actually most famous for being the ch chief uh, creator of, of commercial law, um, Mansfield puts it this way. He, say, he, he talks about the inconsistency of slavery 
with natural law. He says the, sla- the state of slavery is of such a nature that it is incapable of being introduced on any reasons, moral or political, but only by positive law. It is so odious that nothing can be suffered to support it but positive law. So you have a background norm here of natural law that says slavery is odious. It cannot be done. There's no good reason. But it does not trump positive law. Right? And then what he does, very similar to Rutgers against Waddington, he searches the common law reports and the statutes, and he finds that in England there is uh, no basis for, uh, for the establishment of slavery, and he declares that Somerset is free. Now, note that in places like what he calls the plantations, that's us, right, there was positive law supporting slavery, and so slavery was allowed, however odious it might be. uh, The natural law does not overturn, does not trump the positive law. Rather, it exists in the... uh, uh, in the absence of positive law uh, to the contrary. Now, these cases have several important features in common. First, they recognize certain sources of unwritten law, natural law, the law of nations, as authoritative. Right? These are actual legal principles that you can take into court and argue for and potentially win on the basis of them. Right? But, but second... These cases regard these unwritten sources as subordinate to and potentially displaced by the enactments of the legislature. That is to say that the cases accept the premise of legislative supremacy when express constitutional limits are not involved. As Chief Judge Duane says, put it in Rutgers, quote, the supremacy of the legislature need not be called into question if they think positively to enact a law there is no power which can control them. Third, and this is of potentially great importance, courts insisted upon a clear and specific legislative policy before they would allow the legislation, the positive law, to, uh, to, uh, uh, to countermand the, the, the natural law norms that were in the backdrop. Again, Quoting from Chief Judge Duane, the result in question must be, quote, clearly expressed and the intention of the legislature manifest. When not, he says, quote, the judges are in decency, that is in decency, not in, not one word, but two, to conclude that the consequences were not foreseen by the legislature. This must be regarded as a kind of early version of something like a clear statement rule. Now, as we can see from these examples, natural rights exist and were enforceable in court, but they were not trumps. Rather, they were background principles or default rules which could be displaced by positive law, but only when the law is specific enough and explicit enough to demonstrate that the legislature really and truly intended for them to be displaced. Now, constitutional rights would be different. Expressly enumerated constitutional rights have the same juridical status as expressly enumerated governmental powers, and they are understood as limitations on those powers. Congress shall make no law, is the way the Bill of Rights begins, shall make no law. Hence, in our constitutional system, 
constitutional rights are trumps. They are prohibitions on the legislature passing positive law in derogation of certain natural rights. So that if positive law trumps natural law, what the Bill of Rights does is prohibits Congress from enacting positive law that would, that would have that effect. Right? Uh, so when constitutional rights are involved, the question is not whether the legislature really and truly intended to displace the underlying rights. We don't care. Right? Constitutional rights are trumps. But for unenumerated natural rights, if we were to take this, uh, 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 this interpretation of, of the Ninth Amendment, we do care that the natural rights are, uh, are valid and enforceable, uh, but may be displaced by sufficiently explicit positive law. And thus, I agree with Professor Barnett that the Ninth Amendment creates a presumption of liberty with respect to natural rights. But contrary to Professor Barnett, and in contrast to constitutionalized rights, that presumption may be defeated by showing that the people or the people's representatives acting pursuant to delegated power explicitly intended to relinquish a claimed right. It's not up to the courts to decide, based on their own preferences or ideology, whether a restriction on liberty is, quote, reasonable and necessary rather than improper, uh, to quote again from Professor Barnett. The point, after all, is to vindicate the exercise of popular sovereignty that is the social compact, not to empower judges to second-guess the people's decisions regarding the boundaries of retained rights and delegated powers. I'd like to stress that the approach I'm suggesting quite tentatively here uh, differs from traditional uh, judicial restraint as might be described by someone like, uh, like Robert Bork because it allows the judiciary to enforce traditionally protected but unenumerated rights in the absence of explicit and enforceable positive law uh, to the contrary. But it also differs from modern substantive due process jurisprudence because it does not treat the courts as the final word. It more closely resembles a dialogic approach to constitutional interpretation that some theorists advocate on institutional grounds, and it avoids the danger of judicial overreach that comes uh, by, uh, by giving the, uh, and, and it does this by giving the representatives of the people the final word where the Constitution is silent, but only when they act expressly and intentionally. Now, I leave it to you to evaluate whether such a form of judicial review has advantages over the two prominent modern alternatives. For now, I would suggest only that this approach makes sense of the framers' words and what we know about their understanding of the pre-constitutional ideas of rights theory and the way that they're protected. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Judge Boggs, for – I mean, Judge Boggs is up there. Uh, Judge McConnell, for that, uh, for that uh, tour de force, uh, in the name of force, if I may. Um, let me open with just a quick question to you, and then uh, we're going to go beyond the 6 o'clock deadline, obviously. And, and, uh, and uh, those of you who can't stand and need to go out and get a drink may do so, but uh, the action will be in here, let me tell you. Quick question. You, you, you distinguished your issue, uh, your, your conclusion from that of Bork, uh, because you say uh, this view allows courts to recognize unenumerated rights when there's no positive law to the contrary. 
why would anybody be in court under such circumstances? You're in court only when there is a positive law that stands athwart your uh, your right. Uh, get my point? I, I, I do, and yeah. that, that assumes that that there are only two categories. Either there is law or there isn't, when very frequently there's a vague assertion of, of law. Um, let me give uh, – there, actually, just there actually are examples in modern Supreme Court jurisprudence. Before you do, can there. I just sharpen it one quick sure. – quickly, and that is this. Why – why would the issue even come up? You own, you don't assert rights except defensively, except when they're threatened, and they're threatened by a Democratic majority passing a law. I did. You, you well, didn't get up here. You didn't get up here and threat, say. Sometimes they're threatened by executive authority asserting the right. Uh, well, uh, based upon uh, very vague uh, assertions. Let me. So let me get, so, uh, just uh, I think no, a couple no. of modern examples may help. There's a. A, a case about called Zedvitus versus I'm now forgetting the other side of it. Zedvitus. It's a it's a case about there's a statute which provided that when aliens have been convicted not uh, and imprisoned and they are found by clear and convincing evidence to present a danger to the public. Usually this means sec, untreatable sex offenders, uh, but they cannot be. Um, uh, repatriated to their own country. Uh, the statute gives the, the attorney general 90 days to you know, process it in some way. And then the statute goes on to say, uh, and that the uh, attorney general is authorized to keep them for, some, for an additional period of time under some circumstances. Well, the attorney general interpreted that statute to mean he could keep them indefinitely, forever. Right, if we couldn't send them back, the Supreme Court came back and it said, uh, it said, no, that statute. There's certainly a background norm against um, against keeping people incarcerated without, uh, you know, in, indefinitely and beyond the term for which they're convicted. Uh, and they said that this statute, although the plain language of the statute, uh, if you give it just its, you know, squint, it says for for additional time. The court said that is not a, an explicit enough authorization to indicate that Congress really meant the attorney general to have this kind of extraordinary power, and they said he can't do it. Then when, they come, when the attorney general comes back with uh, much more narrowly defined uh, uh, terms for doing much the same thing, the Supreme Court says, well, now that's okay. So the explicitness problem is solved. Another very recent example, take the Hamdan uh, case, where, uh, where the court in, the, in Hamdan basically says that the, uh, uh, the, 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 so people are being detained in Guantanamo, and the administration says that the authorization for use of military force is sufficiently broad to authorize their being held indefinitely only on the basis of, of military commissions. And the Supreme Court said, uh, basically, in the absence of legislation saying that more specifically, we're not going to presume that that's, that was what Congress intended. And indeed, later in the next case, when Congress came back and did pass a specific military detention law, the Supreme Court uh, uh, was uh, w willing to go along with that. So, and these are both cases where you have very broad assertions of uh, of governmental authority in vague terms, 
where it's far from clear that the political um, representatives of the people actually intended such a sweeping uh, 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 enforcement of them. And I think that this would be this would be a modern equivalent of uh, of Rutgers. And actually, I think I've I, I'm, I've come up with about twelve or so Supreme Court cases in the last twenty years in which they've seemed to do something of that sort. But they're still matters of statutory interpretation. Well, what it often does is it throws the case back to the legislature. Let's take, for example, we have the uh, – take the question uh, that was involved in Bowers against Hardwick and and Lawrence against Texas. This is a great example of where the Supreme Court sort of lurches back and forth between the two extremes, right? And so in Bowers, the court says, uh, well, uh, they get out their constitution. They don't see anything in it about – uh, homosexual sexual conduct, and so they say, well, it's not protected. Therefore, we're going to uh, in- allow Texas to uh, enforce its its law. In fact, if you had looked, I mean, they could have looked at the actual statute, which refers to offenses against nature, if my memory serves me correctly, right, and which had never in it had not traditionally been interpreted. I don't. This is a family audience, but had not traditionally been interpreted to apply to the conduct in which um, Mr. Hardwick had been uh, engaged when when apprehended in the bedroom. Right. If they had done that, they could have said, "There's really no. We don't believe that uh, that the people of that the legislature of Texas has specifically and explicitly made this conduct uh, illegal." Then if the legislature wants to meet and pass a law, I think, I mean, I don't know anything about Texas politics, but I'm, I'm recently from oh, Utah. Right. I, don't even think, I don't even think that the legislature in Utah would, would pass a law now specifically criminalizing uh, uh, consensual homosexual conduct, and I doubt Texas would either. Georgia. And the effect of this... Georgia. Well, I, I know. I'm, I'm, oh, I was thinking next of, of Lawrence, excuse me. Because uh, uh, in Lawrence, they then lurch to the opposite, where they say, okay, well, we're sure we don't find it anywhere. We, we, we find it only in the sweet mysteries of life. Um, but nonetheless, uh, uh, it's constitutionally protected, and we don't care what the legislature does. So they sort of lurch from one extreme to the other. And I'm suggesting that it would have been it would have been better, I think, as a matter of constitutional language. I would say also as a matter of constitutional theory, but also, may I dare say, as a matter of practical politics, it would have been better to, thro- to allow for the court to recognize that the legislatures have some right in there. And then when the legislatures don't pass such a law, it has democratic warrant, right? I, I mean, many people are still furious because they see the Supreme Court usurping. If the Supreme Court were not a usurper, but were simply were, were saying, okay, if, if, if people, if you really do want to throw somebody in jail for what uh, uh, Lawrence or Hardwick have done, uh, let us know and we'll consider the constitutional question. But in the meantime, uh, we're not going to, we're not going to uh, uphold their convictions. I think it would have been. Uh, uh, I think there would have been much more public uh, 
a political acceptance of this. And sometimes I suspect what would happen is that you'd get a modernization. What you'd get, so if if in Roe versus Wade they had, I'm not quite sure how you can do it in, in Roe, but in, in some uh, in in a case of that sort, if they had said, well, that statute is really at this point so archaic and overbroad and poorly defined that we're not going to enforce it, then a legislature would have an opportunity to write a, you know, a modern statute reflecting uh, a, a modern uh, a mores, and I think we we might well be in a very different, in a, in a much better position. Randy, did you have a question? Yeah, um, you just call me Marshall McLuhan. Uh, <laughs> Mike enjoyed your your lecture very much. I'm standing up so that I can see you and, and that you can see me since we're we've got an intervening podium here. Um, I thought it's hard to know exactly what one can say from the floor uh, when it comes to. A, I think you're officially limited to asking questions. Well, but <laughs> I think that's an unenumerated uh, limitation. <laughs> I thought so. I don't they rec- were specific and explicit. Uh, that, that is an it's an enumerated right here in Cato. So at any rate, what I would just want to well, say, I think you have, is, I think you have uh, a right of response since the, the name was abused. The uh, I think the primary disagreement uh, in the way that we're looking at the historical sources is that I think you are imputing to the founders what is essentially the British jurisprudence of parliamentary supremacy, which at the time of the founding, the founders did not subscribe to, that generally speak, not that no one in the, in the United States at that time subscribed to it, but the predominant view uh, was one of a, uh, a pre-existing British higher law constitutionalism, more associated with Lord Cook uh, than with Blackstone. Um, and under that tradition, uh, the legislature was not supreme and was subject to higher law, uh, the higher law that was subject was part of the law of the land clause, for example, in the Magna Carta. Now, it is possible that the founders misunderstood Cook, and Cook really didn't take the view that he, he was supposed by the founders to take, but that was the founders' view of, of Cook. Um, and this, by the way, uh, is laid out in, in wonderful detail by your former colleague, Fre- um, Fred Geddix at University of Utah, in his most recent uh, article in the Emory Law Journal called An Originalist Defense of substantive due process in which he lays out this basic conflict. It's not in my work, actually. And he does talk about the Rutgers case, and he notes that, for example, Hamilton makes the higher law argument in the Rutgers case, and then he reaffirms that higher law argument in Federalist 78, um, uh, and uh, notwithstanding what the judge uh, ruled in that case. So that's the basic fundamental disagreement. And where that comes out in the evidence that you discuss, in particular of Madison's uh, uh, pre- precursor to the Ninth Amendment, which you read to us, uh, and that is when Madison refers to these rights as you emphasized the part where he said actual limitations, uh, although you read the entire thing, but then when you came back to it, you emphasized where he says these bill of these enumerated rights were actual limitations. He also says, or for greater caution, as you read to us. Well, that or for greater caution language didn't do any work in your analysis, and the way I look at that statement by Madison is that the the Bill of Rights, which were actual limitations, are what Madison elsewhere in that very same speech refers to as the positive law rights that are created by the Bill of Rights. And the example of a positive law right he gives is the right of trial by jury, which is not part of a natural right. Um, and the or for greater caution part were the natural rights uh, included uh, in the Bill of Rights. And in his notes for that speech, he identifies the right of freedom of speech as a natural right. So. In his view, the or for greater caution was a reference to the natural rights. The actual limitations were things 
greater and better or more positive than natural rights. But then these natural rights would, in fact, have the same enforceable effect after uh, the Bill of Rights as before. So again, so the, the question that I would leave to you then is that under your interpretation, uh, for example, the natural right of freedom of speech or the natural right to keep and bear arms uh, would have been unprotected in the two years um, after the Constitution was enacted but before the Bill of Rights was enacted. And do you really think uh, that the founding generation thought, for example, that it would be constitutional for government to take property for public use without just compensation during that two-year hiatus, that in fact the Bill of Rights changed uh, the constraints on government in that way? And is there any evidence that anybody thought at that time that the Bill of Rights actually made a difference in that regard, that it would make a takings claim possible when it previously hadn't been, or a freedom of speech press or assembly claim possible when it previously hadn't been? Because I'm not aware of anybody at the time who who said that. Um, I, I, I think there were three, three excellent points uh, in there. First of all, I do think that we need to think about Lord Cook. Um, I, I think that the idea that Lord Cook believed that, that a higher law is in every respect uh, superior to the acts of parliament is, in fact, um, not, not only is it not a good interpretation of Cook, but it is not a good interpretation of what the framers thought of Cook. And in here, uh, uh, I, I haven't read Fred's book yet, although it's certainly on my bookshelf, but I did slog through Philip Hamburger's uh, Law and Judicial uh, Duty, which I recommend uh, not only for insomniacs, but also for those who want an absolutely uh, 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 exhaustive uh, examination of this question. And uh, Hamburger believes that the sovereign entities, uh, I think he shows that the sovereign entities, which is essentially the king and parliament, not all government, but the actual instruments of sovereignty, were not subject to a higher law reexamination by uh, judges, even in the Cookian uh, uh, tradition. But you know, we can argue that the second point is to Madison's distinction between. Uh, uh, he, he makes two different types of distinction. He distinguishes between natural and positive rights. As this is, I'm, I'm restating uh, uh, what Randy has already told us. He also does talk about uh, actual limitations and then some things that are uh, there for for greater caution. Now, Randy asks us to put those two dichotomies together to say that. The for greater caution refers to natural rights, and the actual limitations uh, refers to positive rights. First of all, there's, I think, Randy, tell me if, please tell me if I'm wrong, but there's no actual support for that. That could be an interpretation imposed upon Madison's words, but he doesn't actually say that. And there's one reason to think that he doesn't mean that, which is the term limitations on rights is not a very good uh, it is not a, a, a sensible term to use with respect to grants of positive rights, right? So when you say that, when you when you want to say that that Madison's reference to actual limitations is referring to positive law rights like the right of of, of trial by jury, um, when positive law rights are being granted, that's not a limitation on the power 
that is a grant of a particular right. And so I think the word limitation is it would be ill-suited to Madison's uh, terms. I think what Madison meant when he was referring to inserted for greater caution is that he believed, as Hamilton did, that there were some of the bills of rights which simply could not be, uh, either could or would never be uh, uh, infringed under the under this new constitution, I suspect establishing a religion might very well be one of those, um, and uh, because because it's very hard to see uh, where how that is a means to the effectuation of any of the uh, of the enumerated powers of Congress. I'm, that's my speculation, my example, uh, not not his. But I think that that's what he is uh, referring to uh, there, and then. Your third point is I didn't make what, what would have happened in the two years. Oh, what happened in the? I mean, I think uh, uh, nothing much happened. Although there are some, there were a few things Congress did that raised issues of, uh, for example, search and seizure on the high seas. They authorized certain searches that uh, on the high seas that uh, that help us to understand the difference between. Uh, uh, Domestic, that is, within the territorial jurisdiction of the United States and the, and the extraterritorial application of what would become uh, the Fourth Amendment. But you know, you're, you're largely right that not much happened. The gov- federal government was barely up and running, and so it wasn't seizing anybody's property to speak of. But that's what people were worried about. They were, the, the Quakers were genuinely worried that they were going to be drafted, and people were genuinely worried that some of these things would uh, would take place, which is why the the demand for a Bill of Rights had so much salience. Uh, if they were confident that the federal government was never going to invade any of these rights uh, because they were natural rights and therefore already legally enforceable, the, the drive for a Bill of Rights wouldn't have had uh, uh, nearly the potency my, that, my third question really wasn't – my third question was whether there was evidence that the Bill of Rights was thought to have changed um, the stature of these rights such that previously they were unenforceable and then they became enforceable. I, that, that was my third uh, question. Well, I just – I'd like – since I just don't think there are any incidents that arise during that, during that several-year period that – It's not that the incidents. Jefferson sent a letter out as Secretary of State two years or after 1789 – when the Bill of Rights was finally ratified, and it was the third item he listed below a cod fisheries law and something else. I mean, it was so little noticed as an important event because it was just understood. Of course we have our rights, and we don't depend upon the Bill of Rights for our rights. And that's why it was listed third in his list of things that have been done in Congress. I don't think... So so the, the, the... Criticism of the Constitution for lacking a Bill of Rights was probably this. I mean, it wasn't the only good point that the Anti-Federalists made, but it was certainly the most politically powerful point. And I cannot think of a single Federalist who responds to that by saying that it's unnecessary because these are natural rights which are going to be legal and legally enforceable. The argument that it was unnecessary was not based upon natural rights jurisprudence. It was based upon the careful enumeration of powers, which was said to be so so perfect that it wasn't going to give uh, give rise to the invasion of rights. Now, I think that was a lousy argument, but that's the argument that they made. Nobody made the argument 
that natural rights are going to be are, are already sufficiently legally uh, uh, protected. We've got a bat, um, <coughs> Slugger's Alley down here. Nick, uh, you're... Judge, what would it take to satisfy your clear statement rule? So could Congress say at the end of any given statute, this statute is not to be interpreted by reference to any conception of natural rights, and would that do it? And uh, maybe Part B, if they could do that in a single statute, could they do that globally at the beginning of the U.S. Code? Um, first of all, it's absurd to think that they would. I mean, that's just not the way Congress operates. But the key, the, the important thing to my mind is what Duane, is Duane's point. The question is whether the intention of the legislature has actually been uh, manifested with respect to this this. Uh, application now, how um, how explicit does it need to be? Is not something which there, there's going to be some magic formula. I think a great deal depends upon how uh, how how uh, firmly established the the right in question is. I think you would look for much more explicit uh, uh, evidence of intention in the case of an you know a very you know well established right. If that's you know if it's something a little. Uh, uh, a, a little uh, 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 on the fringe, well, you know, not very well established, then maybe less so. But you know, this is not this is not going to be uh, uh, you know, this is not formulaic. It it reminds me a little bit, and what I'm suggesting reminds me a little bit of the pre New Deal doctrine, and this, of course, will warm the cockles of Judge Ginsburg heart. Any pre New Deal doctrine, right? Uh, that uh, that the uh, that statutes and derogation of the common law are are narrowly construed. Uh, now the common law, in a, from the first hundred or some odd years, common law and natural law are not the same thing, but they are kissing cousins, right? They were very close, uh, and so uh, the idea was that legislation is actually somewhat to be suspect, and it should be interpreted as much as possible to conform uh, to, be, uh, to be accommodated to common law, and only if they are really ir- irreconcilable would the, um, would, uh, would the legislation uh, trump. But in the end, yes, legislation trumped. But I would say that one might look to that hundred years of jurisprudence uh, for some guideposts as to how uh, a regime of this sort could be administered. Judge Ginsburg? Uh, Mike, uh, my, my understanding is uh, that the, the um, expressio unius argument was, yeah, it's working. was the, uh, the most frequent and, and probably most forceful objection. It figures prominently in Jefferson's correspondence with Madison and urging Madison to uh, persist in opposing a Bill of Rights. Uh, And that seems a little puzzling if the only consequence of having the Bill of Rights with and excluding things that don't come to mind or that are thought to be too trifling is that the clear statement rule is suspended as to them. That's the degree of derogation of those rights. Is that the consequence of your view then? Well, it is, but... If the clear, if an application of a clear statement principle has any oomph, then that matters quite a lot. 
You see, their view was it isn't just that these other rights aren't going to, you know, that prior to the Ninth Amendment, their view wasn't just that these rights were not going to be given constitutional status. Their view was that these rights were going to be relinquished, that the act of a partial enumeration was a giving up, an affirmative giving up of the uh, of the uh, unenumerated rights, uh, and uh, that um, I mean, at least you know, sounds- Matt Madison and others seem to think that was a pretty serious consequence. That sounds like more than merely giving up the clear statement requirement. Well, it's giving up whatever right, whatever status they had before, right? And so, what status did they have before? Uh- Professor Bernstein up in the back there. Uh, very, very interesting talk. David Bernstein from George Mason. Um, two, two, quick, two quick things. One, along the lines of what Randy said, I'm kind of hesitant, I think, about analogizing from English law to American constitutional. I mean, the English had a constitution. It wasn't a written constitution. But the rights were not Trump's because they couldn't be Trump's because as Randy pointed out, they had a system of legislative supremacy. So to analogize to that, to the American system, where you clearly don't have a system of legislative supremacy, I think is drawing you know, an analogy that doesn't work in my mind, assuming we really do think the Bill of Rights were Trump's. That's a whole new world compared to the English Constitution. The other quick point is that I've actually been thinking of something along the lines of what you suggest, not quite the same when I'm doing this Lochner book, this isn't going to be in the book, but I've been thinking about it anyway, that perhaps one way of reconciling uh, some of this stuff, Randy's work and others, is to say that there is a constitutional presumption of liberty uh, with regard to natural rights or with regard to something, some kind of unenumerated rights, but that that is for the legislature primarily to enforce, that they're supposed to be considering when they pass legislation whether they're invading rights. Now, the courts have a second shot at it, but that second shot would be with a strong presumption in favor of constitutionality. The difficulty I have with this, and it's a little bit different than what you said, but it's along the same lines. The difficulty I have with this is that it's very clear that unlike in the early years of the republic, the, the legislatures, be it federal or state, almost never take constitutional issues seriously, and they don't look to see if there's uh, a violation not only of natural rights, even if there's an explicit constitutional provision, they often just say, well, we don't really care if it's constitutional because we'll throw it to the courts. And if we're in a situation, as I think we are, where the legislatures have completely uh, just just relinquished their own responsibility for considering constitutionality, why should we retain that sort of presumption in their favor? Um, First of all, I would like to distinguish the position that I'm describing from the idea that natural rights are entrusted entirely to the protection of the legislature. I do believe that they believe that the legislature would be the first, maybe the most efficacious protector for natural rights, but I don't think that that means that you couldn't take them to court also. Uh, I think you just take them to court in this way that I've described, which is a kind of intermediate between nothing and, uh, and everything. Um, as to your point about the legislatures being derelict in considering the constitutionality of their uh, of their acts, I have not done the work with respect to individual state legislatures, uh, but uh, uh, I taught a course a few years ago on constitutional interpretation by Congress, uh, relying heavily on David Curry's uh, set of books uh, by that uh, 
uh, name, which I highly recommend to everyone. I never learned so much constitutional law doing anything. Uh, I mean, t- teaching this course was eye-opening uh, because basically what we did is we looked at every constitutional argument in the uh, prior to the Civil War uh, that took place in Congress. And it is not so that at the beginning that they deferred to the Supreme Court. On the contrary, there were times when, when they would say things like, uh, when, when someone would mention the Supreme Court, that somebody would say something, yes, but, but the Supreme Court will appreciate our having decided this in advance so that it won't have to, you know, they won't have to worry their pretty heads about this. Uh, basically, their assumption was that they were, that they were serious uh, uh, decision makers and a lot of the constitutional issues that arise uh, never make it to court. I mean, the extent of the spending power, a lot of things about uh, treaties and, and and war powers and so forth that they debated at length on constitutional grounds um, uh, were not things that uh, that are ju- of a judicial uh, nature. So I I think that one of the and Robert Nagel from University of Colorado has made this argument at some length that one of one of the prices that have been paid by modern judicial Shall we use the word activism, recognizing that we none of us know quite what it means, um, but have a general sense that one of the prices to be paid for that is is um, is taking letting the legislatures off the hook and encouraging them simply to to kick the can. Uh, over to the court rather than to uh, seriously consider constitutional just, questions could, for their own. Uh, David, we, we, we've, we've really run a half hour over time now. Uh, we've never promised our Simon lecturers a rose garden. Um, and uh, nevertheless, we have benefited uh, immensely from their lectures over the years, whether we've agreed with them or disagreed on various of their points. They've always challenged us to rethink the issues, and when that happens, uh, we come up with uh, new arguments and new insights, and I think that is certainly the case here. And so please join me in thanking uh, uh, Judge McConnell for, for his excellent... Uh, Lecture. And let's now go upstairs for some uh, libation.